them so much. And they've done them for every book in the Bible. So if you're ever like, you know what? Job's 40 chapters before I dive into the whole thing. I want to see a summary of it. They're just, they're fantastic in that way. So anyway, we are at the end. We are at Genesis 50. And so again, that's the very bottom right of page 37 in those blue Bibles. And we're right at the end of the family saga between um, Joseph and his ten brothers who sold him into Egypt as a slave. And really key to understanding what goes down in chapter 50 is key to remembering just how horrible Joseph's brothers were to him. You remember when he was younger, they saw he was the favorite kid, and so initially they planned to kill him, and then they relented just a little bit, and instead they took his, his fancy coat that his father would know was his, and they ripped it, and they smeared animal blood on it, and they took it to their dad, and they said, Dad, we, we don't know, but we think he's dead. And so the father and the whole family, they mourn, but meanwhile the brothers have just thrown him into a pit, and they're figuring out what to do with him. And then they figure it out, and they sell him to slave traders who are traveling toward Egypt. And so he lives his life as a slave for a while. And even there, as a slave, God blesses him, and he gets promoted to the top of wherever he is, whether he's working for Potiphar or in a prison. And eventually, God does some amazing stuff through him, and he ends up being the number two man in charge of all of Egypt. He goes from having no power at the bottom of that pit where his brothers put him and then in a prison to having almost unlimited power in the nation of Egypt. And then this crazy thing happens where there's this famine and because of it, his brothers have to come to Egypt and without knowing that the person they're talking to is their brother Joseph, who they assume is dead at this point. They're bowing down to him and they have to be subservient to him so he will sell them some of the grain that he stockpiled as the guy in charge of Egypt. And eventually, in them going back and forth, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And at that point, when they realize who Joseph is, that their brother that they betrayed and nearly murdered and sold off to slave traders, when they realize their brother is now a guy in charge of the land that they're in, in a place where they have to be. It's not like they could go back home and survive because there's no food there. They have to be in Egypt. They're terrified. And they are sure that their brother is going to kill them and take revenge on them. And then, but he doesn't. And he's really, really kind. And he, he tells them he forgives them. But then do you remember the thing that happened at the end of last week? All these brothers, their, their elderly father, Jacob, finally dies. And so the brothers are assuming at this point, oh man, they're in trouble because Joseph was just waiting for dear old dad to depart and now he can take vengeance on his, on his rat brothers who totally deserve it, right? So that's right where we leave off. So here we go. Genesis chapter 50, verse 1 at the bottom right of page 37 there. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Remember, the father died at the end of the last chapter. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. Remember, Jacob's name is also Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him for 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. 
Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Verse 6, Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and all his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Goshen's the part of Egypt where they live. Verse 9, chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why the place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim, which means mourning of the Egyptians. Verse 12, so Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and with all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Verse 16, So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Ephraim is one of Joseph's sons. And also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Manasseh is the other one of Joseph's sons. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. After they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. I don't know if you noticed, but Genesis takes a pretty sharp turn at the end. Ever since chapter 3. Remember chapters 1 and 2 are about God creating and setting up the world and ordering and establishing everything and setting it up as a good place. And chapter 3 starts this horrible downward cycle of the things people do to mess up God's good world that he's put them in. And specifically from chapter 12 on, where you start following Abraham and his family, it's this awful saga of the horrible things that people do to one another. And throughout it, God is there promising that he's going to fix it, that he's working a plan to bring forgiveness, to bring blessing to everyone. But still, from Genesis 12 on, 
The Bible is really the saga of people in conflict with one another. And that's the theme. And so when you get to Genesis 50, even though Joseph's brothers, after their father has died, even though they make up a lie and say, oh yeah, yeah, Joseph, before dad died, he said that you should totally forgive us, right? They just make that up out of thin air. Even though they do that last thing, Joseph still forgives them. You remember a couple weeks ago we talked about how Joseph is in a lot of ways a preview of Jesus. How he's betrayed by his brothers and and thrown into a pit. And how he's hated because of his goodness and his telling the truth just like Jesus was. And in this last way, Joseph is absolutely a preview of Jesus. If anybody ever had any reason to be mad at anybody, it was Joseph having a reason to be mad at his brothers. The people in his life who were supposed to be closest to him. The people who were most supposed to have his back. Totally betray him. I mean, sure, they don't kill him, but they may as well have. And they ship him off to serve as a slave in some foreign land. And man, if that would have happened to me, if that happened to you, we would be harboring grudges. Or at least I would. Maybe I shouldn't speak for you. But Joseph lets it go. And he takes his other perspective and says, you know what? You did this to me, and you meant it absolutely for evil. But God has used this whole situation to bring out a lot of good. And against all human reason, against all logic, he does this crazy thing. And he says to his brothers, you are completely forgiven for all the horrible stuff you've done. And and Joseph's in this position of absolute power. He's number two in all of Egypt. And he's so trusted by Pharaoh that the Pharaoh doesn't second guess any decision that Joseph makes. He lets him have free reign because he knows he's trustworthy. And so Joseph could absolutely just snap his fingers and give the order. And Egyptian soldiers would just get rid of his brothers forever. And no one would ever question Joseph about it. And yet he doesn't. He offers them forgiveness. And he doesn't just say, okay, you're forgiven. Now go do your own thing and get away from me. I don't want to see your faces anymore. Instead, he says, you're not only forgiven, but I'm going to provide for you for your whole lives. And for your children and your grandchildren. They're going to be part of the royal court of Egypt. You're going to be treated so ridiculously well. So Joseph unreasonably forgives his brothers. And Joseph is absolutely a picture of what we see in the New Testament with Jesus. Now Jesus, the whole time he's around, is is very forgiving and very merciful and, and very kind and strikes this amazing balance of always telling the truth and yet always being the most like loving and good person ever. Because you know it's easy to tell the truth and not be loving or good, right? You, you, you've, your life has been full of that. But he is, he is good and he's truthful and he's kind and he's merciful. And if you want a picture of the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus, if you want to just get, get that firmly in your head, think of the cross for a minute. You remember this. It's recorded at the end of, I think, three of the four Gospels, that moment where Jesus is, is on the cross. And crucifixion isn't just a painful thing, but it's a thing that involves a lot of embarrassment. People would be crucified naked, stood up in, in front of everybody, and, and it it's, has a whole lot of suffering, and it's just awful. And the people are standing around the foot of the cross. 
And there's one or two people like, like Jesus' mom, Mary, and, and, and his friend and disciple, John. They're there and they're kind of crying and weeping because they're powerless to help. But most of the people standing around are the religious leaders. And they're making fun of Jesus while he's on the cross. They're saying, I thought you were the Son of God. Come on down. The Son of God would come down from the cross. What are you doing just suffering up there helplessly? And the soldiers who are standing guard and making sure nobody helps him were the people who had mockingly put a crown of thorns on his head and pounded it in and mockingly put a purple robe on him saying, ha, yeah, you're the king of the Jews, right? Well, here you go, king. And then they rip those things off and they put him up there and and nail his hands and feet into the cross and they make fun of him while he's in the midst of this suffering, horrible death. And in the midst of all that, you remember what Jesus says? He directs his attention to God the Father and says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. To be completely honest and just be a human being with you for a second, I I have no idea how Jesus could do that. Just none. Right? I, there, there are people who have like slighted me and, and hurt me deeply in my life. And it takes me a long time to be able to forgive them. It is not an immediate thing at all. And it involves a lot of struggle and, and having to, to really ask God to bring me some humility, which I just don't naturally have. And, and ask God to, to show me things from his perspective. And it's a struggle to forgive. And yet, the example Jesus gives us is in the midst of all that. He says right then and there, God, forgive these people. There's a few verses I want to show you in the Bible that talk about how Jesus' forgiveness of us should affect our forgiveness of other people. So go to that, that first one, please. This is Ephesians chapter 4. And it says, get rid of all bitterness Rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Malice is like pointed hatred at another person. And it says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So you get that? The Bible says, get rid of all this anger and hate and bitterness. And if anyone had a reason to hold on to those things, it was Joseph. And if anyone had more of a reason, it was Jesus. And yet they didn't hang on to those things. But instead it says, forgive each other in the same way that God forgives you. All right, go to that next one. This is Colossians 3. It says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And then again, the same concept. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And those, those kind of raise a really, really big question. At least they should. And you should say, well, well, I know Jesus said, you know, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But how exactly does God forgive us? When does he forgive us? Does he wait for us to be better? And, and that, that's answered in this next and last verse we'll look at. This is Romans chapter 5. And it says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Joseph didn't wait for his brothers to get their act together. In fact, the last thing they tell him before he forgives them is a lie. And I'm sure he knows it. And Jesus doesn't wait for the people around the cross to get their act together. He just says, forgive them. 
And so the Bible says the way God approaches us in our sins, we've all broken God's law. The Bible says that the wages, the consequence of sin is death. The way God approaches us in our sin is this. He forgives us while we're still sinners. The Bible says everyone who calls out to him, everyone who wants forgiveness from God, gets it. We don't have to be good before we're forgiven. In fact, our forgiveness here in Romans 5.8, it's based not upon what we do and who we are. It's based upon what God does and who He is. So, with that, head to your groups.